all of you. I think that covers the three groups. And uh, we're going to start at the beginning of the story. In Genesis 1, I think it's probably the best possible beginning. And uh, I'm going to skip around a little bit. You can follow along up there. I'll read a few verses, explain some other things, and keep moving. So, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What happens in verse 3 is that God then begins, like a master craftsman, to sculpt, to craft the world that he's made. 1 and 2 is sort of a description of the creation of the universe. And in the 20-some-odd verses that follows, day by day, God goes out and crafts the world, making it a habitable place for people. So let's pick up in verse uh, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. Have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the sixth day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So he blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Then what happens is we have a uh, sort of zoom in on the sixth day. Uh, God goes from this, or the writer goes from this macro large-scale view uh, into the street-level view of the satellite and uh, on day 6. And we're going to pick up in verse 15 just a bit. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, uh, You must eat of every tree of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you'll surely die. And uh, Adam goes about his job finds there's not something there suitable for him, and so God crafts the woman. We'll talk about this later. I want to finish with verse 24 and 5. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, they'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. All right, that's a lot of stuff. Let's pray. If you would like, I'm going to pray. You can join me. Uh, Great Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for these students and uh, for their kindness and attendance tonight. And we pray that you would be gracious to show us wonderful things in your word. Give us sharp minds that might be a little bit dull as we come back to school. Give us soft hearts. Show us great things about yourself in this world that you've made for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So over uh, the Christmas break, I deserted my children. That's the way they viewed it. I actually uh, didn't desert them. I left them in the attentive, loving care of my grandparents, but they called it desertion. As my daughter said, you're not supposed to leave us until you die. And, uh, and uh, because they felt like they were deserted, I, I said, when we get back, you guys can pick a place and I'll take you there. And they chose Chuck E. Cheese. Or preferably Chuck E. Cheese. 
a little more classy that way. Um, so I take my kids to Chuck E. Cheese. It's not nearly the uh, it's not nearly the uh, germ nightmare, germ infested nightmare I thought it would be. Uh, one of the one of the interesting things that happened there is that uh, for the most part, my kids six, four, and two have been uh, sheltered, not in general, but sheltered specifically from video games. We don't play video games in my house. I'm not opposed to them. We just don't play them. So my kids have never played them. And they go to Chuck E. Cheese. And my youngest kids, my little girls, they want to ride the horses and things like that. But my six-year-old son wants to shoot pirate skeletons and, uh, and, and drive race cars. Now, of course, he's never done any of these things before. And so uh, he's plucking his, his coinage into the uh, race car game. And I know what's going to happen. Nothing. He doesn't know how to do anything. Thing, right? He's never driven a car. Uh, he can't reach the pedal. He doesn't know how to shift. And if left to his own devices, he might not ever leave the starting line. The whole time would go, and he'd turn to me in, in decision at the end or insecurity and say, how'd I do? And I'd say, not only did you not win, you didn't go anywhere. <laughs> so I, I tried to help him along a little bit while he did some things, and we finished a lap, and he came in fifth, and it wasn't terrible. But it got me to thinking, not only did my son not like the skill to play this game, he liked the basic orientation to know what to do, even if he did have the skill. He didn't know which way to drive. He didn't know what a race was. He didn't know anything. He didn't know to look out for other cars. Uh, and I thought about that. You know, that's a lot like life. I'm being a little philosophical because we're having another child. And uh, that baby will be born into the world completely helpless. It won't know how to do anything except poop and feed itself on its mother or herself and cry. And those things will be completely involuntary. And uh, it's really interesting. We are, we're not born uh, experienced or skillful for life. And, uh, and like a video game, you're just sort of thrown into this context. Unlike a video game, you do not get three to five lives. You do not get to keep chucking quarters in there infinitely to keep going. If you die in the game, the game's over. You don't get to start all over in real life. You just got one shot at it. And uh, it, it, it makes me wonder, I ask the question then, is life and learning life, because you don't know anything when you're born, is it all trial and error? Is it all learning from your mistakes? How do you grow in wisdom? How do you learn what life's all about? How do you uh, hope to get through this game of life as successfully as possible? Where do you get answers are there clues along the way of life to the, to, to the big questions that you're asking right now as students? Like, where am I supposed to be? Like, right now, where am I supposed to be? In a couple of years, where am I supposed to be? Where's my place? And who are my people? Who, where do I belong? Who are the folks I belong with? Who's the one person I belong with? What am I supposed to do? I mean, what, what am I really made for? What am I supposed to do? What's my passion in life? What am I supposed to do with myself? And that all sort of adds up to one big question. Who am I? Where do you get the answers to those questions as you go throughout life? And, uh, you know, sometimes our approach is trial and error. Some people's answer is to look inside your pretty little heart. Uh, I'm a little cynical about that approach. And uh, some people are, run off to the, to the horoscope or search the skies. Uh, I want to tell you today that the answer to most of your questions, those big questions, are actually found in this chapter, these two chapters. Indirectly, but really, God tells us, he's made it known, that uh, in this grand story here in the beginning, that God's made a world for us, a world for which we're intended. And uh, 
it's really interesting. These first two chapters are hotly debated um, for lots of reasons. Uh, I'd love to talk to you if, you if you're interested in my own views of Genesis 1 and 2 and what they're all about. I'd sit down and drink coffee and talk to you for hours. Uh, but I think the overall intention is really clear. God gave this text to his people to tell them what the world's like. To tell them what the world's like. That he created a world and crafted it for them. And that he's uh, given them a place. And he's given them a purpose. And he's made them people, people. So that's what we're going to talk about. Your place and your purpose and, uh, and your people. So uh, your place. So God creates everything in verses 1 and 2. That's the way that I read the text. That uh, there was a time when there was nothing except for God, and he spoke, and there was everything. And uh, the everything he creates in verses 1 and 2 is unfinished. Now, um, you know, up until about 60 years ago, uh, this has always been a somewhat unpopular view among academics, but uh, up until about 50, 60 years ago, uh, most scientists would have said, uh, let's not even talk about origins, let's just assume the universe has always existed. Let's just assume everything is eternal. That way we get beyond all the metaphysics and philosophy of beginnings. But then we had all this evidence that the world, that the universe had a beginning. That's what the Big Bang idea is. That there was a time when there was not a universe. And that somehow we got all this from nothing. That's what the Bible said all along. We've got all this from nothing. Except to God, who was there beforehand. So I think that happens in the first two verses. And the rest of the chapter is about how God crafts what was a really messy planet in verses 1 and 2, into a place that we can live, a beautiful place that we can live. He begins to craft it by his word, by his speech. He goes out every day like a master craftsman and makes it beautiful. And at the end of every day, like a good worker, he appreciates his work, says it's very good. And at the very end of his week of work, on the seventh day, he looks at it and says, it's very good. And he rests. That's what a good worker should do. And that's what God does here. Uh, I want to point out something for you, that when God stops and looks at this whole world that he's created and says, it's very good, that's something that's really important for us. If you're Christians, it's very important. If you're a person living in the West, it's very important. Because you're direct heirs of this line of thought called Platonism, Greek philosophy, that tells you basically spiritual stuff is good and material stuff is bad. And even if you believe material stuff is good, you tend to believe material stuff is bad. You really do. I mean, this is for like another conversation. But uh, the way that we talk about our bodies sometimes belies this. Guys calling their genitalia junk, for instance. Do you hate your body? Yes, you do. Somewhere deep down, are we, do we not like this world? It's true. And you know what? It's because of Greek philosophy, Platonism, not the Bible. God delights in his creation. He always has. And it's part of the story. And it makes a huge bit of difference where the story is going. Christians aren't supposed to try to escape the world or hate the world. We want to see it beautified. It's actually part of God's great plan. So this is really important for where the story is going to go. Now in uh, chapter 2, God zooms in on the sixth day. This is sort of the, again, the street level view of what's going on. And here we find God uh, putting man in his place. He's created man on the sixth day. But now he's putting him in a place. And it's really interesting. It's a beautiful place. In verses 8 and 9, it's a garden. It's not like the other places and somehow. Um, and why would God take man from a, from a beautifully crafted world and put him in a specific place? A garden. I think it's because place must be important to God. 
I think it's because somehow place must be important to us. That he made us as creatures that have a sense of the importance of place. You may have heard the story in 1986. There was this five-year-old named uh, Saru Munshi Khan. From now on, just Saru. And uh, he uh, walked onto a stationary train with his brother in uh, 1986, just looking for coins, looking for change. His brother was 14. Saru was five. Saru got tired much more quickly than his brother, and he fell asleep on his train. And his brother uh, expanded his search beyond the train, beyond the station. And before you know it, Saru woke up on his way to Calcutta, 1,000 miles away. So Saru was an orphan on the streets until he was taken into an orphanage. And then years later, he was adopted by an Australian family and uh, taken in and moved to Tasmania. And he grew up there. And uh, it was a good family. They cared for him. But it was not his home. It was not his home. And it's interesting uh, that some of us may feel like that in some ways, that we've lost home. That we don't know where home is. I'm sure he grew up wondering where home is. And um, I feel like as we grow up and you're in that stage of life right now, you just did this. You go home. Does home feel like home to you? Sometimes. After like two weeks, are you ready to come back? Absolutely. When you come back here after semester, are you ready to leave? Absolutely. Where do you want to go? You don't know. Where is your home? You don't know. We don't know. Just over the break, I got together with a good friend from St. Louis. We were in grad school at the same time, different grad schools. He's a genius. Well, he's very, very, very smart. Uh, his company just hired him to go to Boston to work with the best scientists at MIT and other places. Um, so he's pretty close to a genius. And uh, in lots of ways, our careers that we prepared for in grad school have gone just like we wanted. We're both doing exactly what we wanted. We have wonderful families. We have wonderful churches. You know, we're in our mid to late 30s, and our careers are going well. And, uh, but we're really pretty good friends, like typical guys. We're really good friends that don't talk to each other for five years. And uh, I'm serious. And uh, so we're having dinner together, and, I, and I, I'm talking about this and these kind of things. And I, I just say, Jamie, do you have any idea where home is? He just moved to Boston. He's like, no. And I was like, me either. I grew up in Virginia. Live in Denver, live in St. Louis, live here. Everywhere I go, I make home. But where is my home? Where is the place where I will rest? Where is the place where I will die? Where is the place that I point to and say, that's where I really belong? I don't know. Maybe that's how you feel. Where's our home? And for many of us, it has to do with what we're doing. It has to do with a sense of purpose and what we're doing there. And uh, that's not incidental. A text tells us that God created us with a purpose, that your life is purposeful. So uh, in verse uh, 26, chapter 1, we see that part of our purpose is simply to reflect God. And we do this whether we want to or not. God said, let us make man in our own image. And he did. And that means that uh, we as his creatures, made by him, we do reflect his image. Part of your purpose is simply by being who you are, to reflect God's image. Reasonable, moral, relational. Uh, and you do that poorly sometimes, but you do it. Uh, this is also really, really important for ethics, for the way we treat one another. Uh, you know, it's, this is just sort of my musing, tangential, but true. Uh, my life's about half over. That's not morbid, it's just true. And... Uh, Maybe you think it's morbid, but it's just true. And um, maybe more than half over. Uh, I don't want to be presumptuous. And, 
I've been around enough to go to college where everyone's idealistic and then see all those idealistic people after 20 years say, hey, how come all the great ideas we had about how the world was going to change haven't changed? How come, how come it doesn't work? How come our country's still full of racists? How come there's still poverty? What's wrong with us? It's a great question. It really is. And I think a lot of it is we never really, as a, as a people, come to grips with this basic truth. That we're called to treat people as those created in God's image. We treat people on the basis of all kinds of other things. Their economic worth, on the basis of their differences, on the basis of their history, on the basis of even their behavior. We're called to treat others with respect and dignity because they were created in God's image. They are His special people. He made them. He made them. Therefore, we should treat one another with dignity and respect. That is the very foundation for how we're to care for one another. And uh, we've had a real hard time doing that since, oh, the beginning of the world. But it's true. It's true. That's why we're supposed to love one another and care for one another and respect one another. Well, uh, just by being a human, you are fulfilling part of God's purpose. But there's more you're supposed to do. You're actually supposed to reign under God's care. This is amazing. In verse 28, uh, we have what's called the cultural mandate. That's a very fancy term for what God describes here in verse 28. God says to mankind, uh, you guys are supposed to go out, I can't find it, and be fruitful, which means have sex and babies, and multiply, and that means the same thing, and fill the earth, that pretty much means the same thing, and subdue it, that means something different. Uh, and um, so this is good. Um, it really is good. But what God is entrusting to mankind here is the world. He's created this world. He declares it very good. He creates men and says, I want you and your family to go take care of it. In fact, I want you to do more than take care of it. I want you to make it better. Now, that's a hard one to prove, but I think it's part of what Adam's first job was. He's given this epic responsibility, and if you think about your own life, seriously, like, you've been here for four days, right? And your room's already a disaster. You're already thinking about skipping classes. You came here with like plans for working out and eating healthy and all those things. Almost completely shot all to pieces already. You can't manage your own life. And you were supposed to rule the world. I'm serious. Feel the tension in that. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, but yet it's true. You know, This is not like me giving my kids a room in the house where I don't care if they destroy it or not. What I call the junk room. Just go up there and beat the crap out of it. Uh, God didn't do that. He actually cares about the world. It's a beautiful place to Him. He entrusted it to us because we were created to do it. We could do it. We could take care of it all. And Adam had this grand responsibility. And I think it was this. You find a clue in verse 5 of chapter 2. It's a, it's a really interesting clue. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord had not caused it to rain, and there was no man to work the ground. That's really interesting. Here, the text is saying, basically, that the world out there, outside the garden, was not yet the way it was supposed to be because there was no man to do the work. Catch that? God made the world to flourish under mankind's work. And Adam is put in the garden and given a job. Okay, this is before any of the bad stuff happens. Work is part of God's good order. You were created to work. Did you realize that? Work's good? Really? I'm serious. You don't think work's a punishment, right? Work's good. God created you to work. I mean, there's something a little bit weird about me. The day after Christmas, in my pajamas, I 
do wear pajamas, sort of. Only from the waist down. The, um, I just had this sudden impulse to work. I can't help it. So I completely rearranged the second floor of my house. I mean, but part of that, part of that's because I'm not really good at resting, but part of that's because I'm creating God's image and I'm, I'm supposed to work. And, uh, and that's true for us. We're supposed to work, and work is good. And Adam's work, I believe, was to take the beauty and blessing of the garden where he lived, and day by day, year by year, child by child, generation by generation, to take that beauty and blessing and spread it to the whole world. Seriously, think about that. The Garden of Eden, this beautiful, perfect place. I mean, what are you going to do with all these kids? Build skyscrapers in the garden? No. You're supposed to take the beauty of the garden and spread it to the world. That was God's intention for man. Man, that is a grand job description. Isn't that amazing? You were created to do that. We were supposed to be able to do that. That's why work and purpose is so important to us as humans. It's in our DNA. We want to work. We want to do something meaningful with our lives because God created us that way. That's why we get frustrated with boring jobs. That's why you feel worthless and useless when you don't do anything. Really. So you just don't do anything for a couple of days and you feel terrible about yourself. Um, the good news is you have work. You do. If you're a student, this is your work. I'm not being trite. It's true. This is your job. Your job is to be the best student you can possibly be. Really, it is. And not to long so much to escape this work to go into some new work. Because when you get there, you'll probably want to do the same thing. Escape that work and go into some new work. This is your job, and it's good. Just do it well. And then do what God does, which is rest. He does both those, you know? Work and then rest. Some of you work really well, but you don't rest. So work and rest. That's God's purpose for you. Well, uh, lastly... Uh, your people. He created us as people that need a place uh, with a desire for a purpose to do something meaningful, to expand his blessing into the world, to work. And uh, I think we carry that around in our, I don't know if you're going to say DNA, maybe, but uh, spiritual DNA, our psychological DNA. We, we have this impulse to do these things. And uh, we also have this desire, uh, innate desire to connect with others. And uh, the world for which we were made is inherently relational. In fact, I would, I would say in some ways the entire universe is relational. Uh, I, I'm not saying there are extraterrestrials talking to us. There may be extraterrestrials. But um, with, with apologies to my introverted, misanthropic friends, people like me, uh, God, God wants us all to be people people in some way. He really does. And I see this in the text because uh, we were created as persons like himself. In verse 26, uh, God says, let's make man in our image, in our likeness. We have the first clue right here that God is, something's funny back there. God is a plurality, that there are multiple persons in the Godhead of the Bible, that there is a Father, Son, and Spirit. This gets clearer as we go throughout the story. But here we can tell there's more than one person. We're God schizophrenic. <laughs> the, the implication is that there's a plurality of people. And that means when there was no universe, God existed in a relationship. That everything has been relational from the beginning. That there has not been an impersonal moment in the history of this world or in the history of the universe. Because God has lived in a relationship with himself. And that we're created in his image, 
as relational beings. We're supposed to relate to him. I mean, the way he, the way he makes man in chapter 2, he crafts him and breathes directly into him the breath of life. It doesn't get much more intimate than that. I mean, I, I haven't had to resuscitate anyone. Well, I would do it if I had to. That's a pretty intimate moment. Thankfully, they're out. They won't remember. Wish I could be out. No. Um, but it's, it's an intimate moment. God is making man intimately and making him for relationship with himself. And then puts him in relationship with the creatures, puts him in relationship uh, with other human beings. And uh, I'm not going to go into detail because I'll be here forever. Some of you already think it's been forever. Um, let me just point out this uh, relationship that Adam has with his wife. That the first marriage was amazing. Uh, some of you may have noticed uh, or know that my wife and I just celebrated our 12th anniversary. Um, some of you who know me well might know that uh, my wife put a little thing on my Facebook wall about wanting to say, see, you're laughing, wanting to say something mushy about how life with me is wonderful, but uh, I wouldn't really like that because I'm not a particularly mushy guy. And... Uh, Something like 87 people like this comment because it seems to say something about me. Um, I just want you to know that she did say we have a good marriage. We love each other. Um, but, but look at this verse 25. Here's, uh, here's in some ways my, uh, my defense of myself and my uh, stated reason for being somewhat cynical, cynical regarding romance. Uh, the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. That right there is the single most romantic moment in human history. Seriously. It's been nothing like it ever since. Two people, without sin, without selfishness, without a tinge of guilt or shame, which we have from the first moment we have a memory almost, look at each other and love one another. There's never been a romance like this. It's the most beautiful romance ever. Right there at the beginning. It really is. Every relationship since then has been stained by selfishness and sin. So, yeah, I'm a little cynical. Um, but this is beautiful. This is the way it was meant to be. It was, it was gorgeous. It was wonderful. That's what, that's what we were made for. That's what we long for in some ways. This open-faced, shameless intimacy to be known and loved. Um, we're created for relationships. And some of you are asking those questions now. Who are my friends? Who do I belong with? Who's the person for me? Who can I open up to and trust? Who will really know me well and not reject me? And we were created for that kind of intimacy and knowledge. And uh, that's because it's who we are. That's how God made us. Uh, so the great philosopher Edward Sharp, Edward Sharp the Magnet of the Zeros, uh, wrote, Home, let me go home. Home is wherever I am with you. And uh, I really like the song, and Edward Sharp, and actually everything he writes. He's really bright. It's a nice sentiment, but it's not true. It's just not. Uh, you can be with a perfect person, but they're not perfect. And if the other things aren't true, you don't have a job, you're not where you belong, it's still not going to be very enjoyable. The reality is, home is wherever all these things come together your sense of purpose and your personhood and the place. Because that's how God made us. That's the world for which you were intended. 
There's a, there's a special theological word for this. It's called kingdom. That's exactly what Adam and Eve had. They were God's people in God's place, under his care, and they were blessed. That's a great definition of kingdom. And that's what we were made for, to live like that. That was our home. And I think our longing, our deep ache for the way things are supposed to be are echoes and longings for that first home. It really is. That's what I believe. Um, So, in 2011, Saru Khan, hereafter known as only Saru, uh, long exile to Tasmania. Tasmania doesn't sound like a pleasant place, but I bet it actually is pretty nice. Uh, he uh, used his remaining vague memories as a five-year-old to uh, search for home. Did a little bit of math. Figured out uh, how long was I on the, on the train back from Calcutta. Got a radius. Employed the, the genius uh, abilities that Google Maps uh, enabled him. And uh, carefully looked for his hometown. He uh, mapped out uh, this broad geographic area and went over it uh, in, in, in really uh, tiny detail, scouring for hours. And he saw one landmark that reminded him of another, and then another. And he sort of unlocked his uh, five-year-old memories. He uh, spotted a neighborhood, and then a street, and then a tin roof, and knew he'd found his old home. In his words, he said it was like being Superman, this ability to uh, fly over everything and look down and see things and then identify it or move on and just not get exhausted. If you had to do this in real life, you would exhaust yourself and never find anything. So a year later, he went home and uh, didn't quite know where home was, but he went to the town and told his story, and people took him to his still-living still living mother and remaining siblings. And uh, he was reunited with his family. He went home. It's an amazing story. Why are you looking at me like this? This is an amazing story. It really is. He got to go home after 26 years. It's amazing. Uh, The sad reality is we can't do that. We don't get to do what he did. See, we were made for that world. And we long for it and ache for it. For the perfect job that will give us fulfillment. For the perfect person that will love me just the way they're supposed to. For the perfect place that meets all my needs for home. And it doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. And there is no math or map that will get you back there. It's just gone. The good news is that there's a grand story. And this is God's great story. That although you can't get home, that somehow God in his kingdom will come looking for you. That he'll come looking for you and recover his people and bring them to be to himself with with him again and grant you his purposes and restore your relationships and give you all the blessings of the way it was supposed to be. That is, in a nutshell, God's grand story. That's how we get home again. All right. I'm going to pray. A good father, I thank you for these students.